Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. So this week, we don't have a guest, unless you call me a guest. I was actually a guest at Wellesley College, which is one of the few all-women's colleges left in the United States, and it's probably the most prestigious one among other, I don't know if I want to call it illustrious, but famous graduates include presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. And anyway, I've got a lot of bright uh, kids at the school, bright young women, and I was eager to go, and I was invited by Professor Thomas Cushman, who leads a, a, a pro-freedom, pro-open discussion center there. And I got to speak to them about the moral case for fossil fuels. Now, one thing that I enjoyed about this presentation was the opportunity to speak to a, an audience that was at best neutral but really, you know, it was not hostile, but was going to be suspicious of my viewpoint. And that is really the audience I wrote the book for. So it was an exciting opportunity to see how good a job can I do with that audience. Now, I speak to those audiences all the time, but every time I think I learn a little bit more. And I think this one was the best one I did so far. So uh, take a listen. It's got a speech that's probably about 45 minutes and then Q&A that's over an hour. So uh, the students were very, very engaged and that was exciting. So let me know what you think and I will be there on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. All right, everyone. I'm sure everyone has the exact same, outsiders have the exact same cliche reaction at their speakers, which is, why are, why are there so many girls here? Because most of the time it's all guys at the speeches. So, Anyway, um, let's do a quick survey because I've never met any of you. I'm curious where you're coming into this from. So I'm going to give you three options and we'll take a poll. So the first is humanity is morally obligated to get off fossil fuels very quickly. That's number one. Number two is humanity is obligated to get off fossil fuels but needs to do it slowly. That's number two. And number three is humanity is obligated to use more fossil fuels. So we have get off quickly, get off slowly, and use more. So if you don't fit into one category, of course, you can choose not to vote. But I just want to get a general sense. So who would say get off quickly is your inclination? Okay, so maybe almost half the room. How about get off slowly? Okay, how about more? These are maybe all outsiders who came here through my Facebook page. <laughs> then uh, I'm going to raise my hand uh, as well. So, no, so what's interesting about this to me is that this is like the last place, let me turn this off, that I expected to end up. So um, as was mentioned in the intro, I grew up in Maryland in a place called Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is as you probably know, not a major fossil fuel area. It's in the Washington, D.C. area. We're not taught in Montgomery County public schools that fossil fuels are good. 
I didn't come from a mining family. I didn't know anyone in the industry until about three years ago when I had already formed all of these views. Um, I was taught what I think all of you are taught more or less, which is that fossil fuels are this unsustainable addiction that we need to get off of. Their impact is overwhelmingly negative, and we should, you know, if, if, if we're idealists, we should want to get off of fossil fuels. And so I, I went all the way from that education, which I had in high school, which I had in Duke. I had n not one teacher ever told me one positive thing about fossil fuels to becoming known as, you know, maybe the sort of world's most fervent exponent of fossil fuels. Just to give you a sense of the lengths I go to, uh, this is last year, this is almost exactly a year ago, there's an event, someone raise their hand if you're actually at this event, but it was in New York, you were at the event, did you see me there? Okay, <laughs> it was called the People's Climate March, you recognize it. In New York City, there are about 100,000 people um, estimated on the premise that our fossil fuels is something that we're morally obligated to end rapidly. And uh, I disagreed with this vehemently. I flew on my own dime from, uh, I live in Laguna Beach, California. I flew to, to New York to do this. Now there are 12 of these videos, which you can see on YouTube, but I'll just show you one. Do you hear what they're saying? Hey, hey, ho, ho, fossil fuels have got to go. I have a very different opinion on the matter. Uh, let's go. Let's go see if we can engage. Oh my God. <laughs> can we just go stand in the middle? We'll give out a handout if you want to learn more, if you want to watch the, that video and the other 12 videos, among other things, uh, we'll send you that information. But So it's definitely something that, you know, I definitely put my, my body where my mouth is in that kind of situation. You occasionally you get like minor physical threats and obviously people are yelling at you, but you should, you know, I believe it's right. And so, so why do I believe it's right? Uh, I think it's because I have a, a very unusual background. I actually don't know anyone else who's an energy expert um, who has this background, and it's partially because I was not trained remotely as an energy expert. All of that I learned on my own uh, after college. My, my background and my passion in life was moral philosophy. That was what I was obsessed with and, and still am obsessed with. And that's really the issue of how do we think logically and carefully about issues of right and wrong. When we're, we're dealing with these big kinds of controversies, how do we make sure that we're right? Because we take actions, like we vote, we give out books, we try to persuade people. If we do the wrong thing, we have huge moral responsibility. If we do the right thing, then we get credit. But it's something that we need to take very seriously. And of course, people disagree on these things. And from a very young age, I was interested in, well, why do they disagree? And how can you, you know, what, what can you do um, to, to have the best chance that, that you're right? And so that was one thing. And then the second thing was almost random. Uh, it, after college, I decided I wanted to do moral philosophy, but I didn't want to be in academia. I didn't really like, um, no offense to college, but I didn't like it that much for various reasons. I like more practical things. So I wrote about lots of practical issues. I wrote like about morality applied to genetics, business, everything you can imagine. But I never really found one issue that, that really held me. And then I discovered this issue of energy. It was totally random. Uh, I was doing a report, or not a report, but an essay on John D. Rockefeller. And it was about the question of, was John D. Rockefeller a villain or a hero? And to, to do that, I needed to understand how did John D. Rockefeller become successful? Was he successful because he exploited people and he, he took advantage of everyone else in the oil industry? So he was, he was an oil refiner, so he made, light, he made uh, kerosene for illuminating lamps mostly, and then later gasoline. 
or, or did he earn it? And so it was fascinating to me. So I studied, I said, okay, well, let's start out, let's study before oil in the first place. Let's look at the oil industry before Rockefeller and then after Rockefeller. And what I discovered then was something that interested me more even than the Rockefeller story, which was the, the story of, of how we came to use oil as light. So who here has heard the idea that we use uh, of, of how we switch from whale oil to regular oil? Has anyone ever heard this idea? So this idea that if you know you read Moby Dick, you know you'll you'll learn that people used to use oil from whales, especially sperm whales, to light their homes. And the, the general idea was, well, we you know we got our oil from whaling oils, <laughs> whaling oils, <laughs> from um, from whaling whales rather, and you know from their blubber it was called spermaceti. And then what happened is we started running out of whales, and so we needed an alternative. And so luckily we found this stuff called oil. And then we're going to run out of that, and we need to find something different. That's kind of the narrative. What was interesting to me, though, is when I looked at the, the primary sources, actually, it wasn't just whale oil. There were about six major competitors on the market. So there were all, it was a very dynamic thing. People used whale oil. They used lard oil from pigs. They had, like, technologically advanced lard oil. They had coal oil. They had the stuff from turpentine uh, that was, like, very cheap, but it exploded. It was really fascinating. You had all of these alternatives, and yet one fact really struck me. And that was the fact that despite all of these energy options, the countryside was dark. So the people who lived in the country, the farmers, couldn't afford light for the most part. Certainly the poor people, they couldn't afford light. So there was energy, but that energy wasn't cheap, plentiful, and reliable. And what happened in 1859 is that they discovered how to use these, this material called petroleum, which was basically thought to be useless, and they figured out how to find it and extract it and, and turn it into valuable products, including uh, fuel for light. And I read this quote five years later from a chemist in New York, and he, and he observed that where the countryside had been dark, it was now light. And it's because for the first time, someone had discovered in illumination a source of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. And it really just struck me that I thought to myself, what would it, imagine this had happened in my lifetime. Like imagine I went from you can't see at night, and you can't even see that well during the day. I mean, you know, most we use light during the day all the time. To I have hours. I can do whatever I want with my evenings. I mean, that's hours more to everyone's life. And it just really struck me. The thing that struck me was just energy is so important, and I never appreciated that. Energy is so important, and I never appreciated it. And particularly cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is important, and I never appreciated it. And, and the more I, I explored this, the more I realized it was far beyond that, because it wasn't just about lights. Because really what energy is, in physics class you learn, in physics class you learn energy is what's called the capacity to do work. Um, but what that, that really means in practice is it's our ability to use machines, to power machines to improve our lives. Um, machines, just like human beings, need calories. You know, so if you look on the you know, U.S. daily allowance of calories, it'll tell you like you should consume 2,000 or 2,500, depending on how big you are. Uh, but... What we find is that the calories that humans consume and the energy that we have and the power that we can exert and the work that we could do is very, is very minor. We're very weak creatures. We can't do very much, which is why historically we were very much at the mercy of nature. We didn't fare very well. There was high infant mortality. People just struggled. And we had this incredible breakthrough where we could figure out how to make machines do work for us. And that's what everything we have around us is due to, that we can have machines do our work for us. But those machines, just like we need calories, so those machines need calories. When you think of energy, it's useful to think of machine calories. 
and what oil did in illumination and what other fuels did later, what, what they were able to do was to, find, to produce more and more machine calories so we could have more and more work done for us so that we can have better and better lives. And if you look at the places in the world with the least energy, the least machine calories, they have the least machines, and they can do the least work. Places like North Korea. If you compare North Korea to South Korea, it's just totally, totally different. In North Korea, it's much more manual labor. In South Korea, it's much more machine labor. So it was just this, this thing was so important. So that was, that was for me, number one. I got motivated just to learn about it. And then number two, and this brings in philosophy, the more I studied it, the more I thought the way we're thinking about this issue is really bad. Like really bad in that it's bound, it's bound to have us make bad decisions. And I'll give you an example, one thing I started to observe. So I was observing that, okay, cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is really crucial. And oil at the beginning for illumination was the best way to do it. Later, electricity, mostly generated by coal, was the best way to do it. And I observed that even into modern times, particularly oil was the cheapest way to, to power almost every vehicle in civilization. So that didn't mean it was perfect or even overall good. But what I noticed was that in my education, whenever fossil fuels, so that's coal, oil, and natural gas were discussed, all I ever heard was negatives. And whenever solar and wind were discussed, all I heard was positives. And that, that, that triggered something in my head because that's never a valid way to think about an issue. You can't take one technology and say, I'm only going to look at the negatives, and another, I'm only going to look at the positives. A rule of, of moral thinking is you need to look at the negatives and positives all, of all the alternatives, and you need to do it very carefully. And then that was another aspect that people didn't seem to be very careful, particularly when they were discussing the negatives of fossil fuels. But, but you need to be very careful. So I'll talk about the climate issue and how we think about that more a little later. But one thing I observed about that is people didn't seem to be very careful with their language about global warming or climate change. Like they'll, they'll say, do you believe in climate change? That seems very vague, because do you mean just the climate changes? Well, you don't exactly mean that. Do you mean that we have some impact on the climate? Do you mean we have a significant amount? Do you mean we have a catastrophic amount? If we're making big decisions, we need to be very careful about these things, because if we're making a mild difference and we get lots of benefits from fossil fuels, that's one thing. If we get minor only minor benefits from fossil fuels and we're having massive sea level rises, that's another thing. So we need to be careful. And it's really frustrating to me that, that people weren't very careful. It was just very partisan. Usually from one side you'd hear only positives of their side, only negatives of the other, uh, and vice versa. And you see this in, you know, you watch presidential debates, you get this kind of, of thing. But I had, no, I had no inherent interest in fossil fuels or liking them versus everything else. You know, I wear I love fossil fuels, but that, that's a consequence of my assessment of where the different technologies are at this point in time. So my, my goal in my exploration, what I'm going to share with you today, was to think, what, to do what I didn't think was done clearly and to really educate myself about what is, the, what is really the right path forward with this technology that we use so much in our civilization. And to be open to all alternatives. But the, kind of, the rule is I have to be clear on what is my goal? And so for me, the goal is always I want to maximize human well-being. And then I have to be clear that to achieve that goal, I have to think carefully about the positives and negatives of all of the different alternatives. So number only the most important thing that I'm, I'm saying tonight is that method. So you might come out and you might say, well, I think you're weighting one issue wrong, or I disagree with you, or you don't even know if I'm right. You want to go investigate. That's good. But I think that method is really important, that we have like table stakes that we can agree on for how to think about it. I think in our culture, we're not thinking about it in that way. So we're, it's impossible to get the right 
uh, conclusion. And that we can always get more knowledge about the facts. So let's say I find out something different that changes my opinion. If I have the right method, I'll come to the right conclusion. If it's just a partisan belief, then I'll, I won't come to the right conclusion. So this is how I, I put the issue. So the rest of the talk, I'm just going to do a summary of, of what my assessment is of these things. What are the positives? What are the negatives of, of the different alternatives and, and how I think about them? First, I want to ask a question that I, is almost never asked in our discussion of fossil fuels. You ready? I wonder how many know the answer. What are fossil fuels? How many of you think you could give me a good definition of what fossil fuels are? Don't be shy. We've got one half of one arm raised. <laughs> I, won't, I promise not to even call you out. You can just express. So this is an interesting thing. And this is, I certainly had no idea um, when I was in school. But this is an interesting phenomenon, right? Because everyone had an answer about their opinion of whether we should use more of them or less of them. But we don't even know what they are. And this is, this is, a, this is a, a, th a very negative trait, of not of people in here, but of the debate where we're encouraged to have very strong opinions without being very clear about what we're talking about and without being very clear about everything. So we want to be clear first, what are fossil fuels? And I think if we understand what they are, it helps shed a lot of light on, on what the issues are. So here's my simplified definition of fossil fuels, which I think you'll see really covers a lot of it, really makes sense of both the positives and the negatives. So it's high energy hydrocarbons, many of which originated from ancient dead plants. So high energy hydrocarbons, uh, many of which originated from ancient dead plants. By the way, you'll get a handout. Uh, that's actually designed for a different audience. The only thing is, if you want more of our materials, just put in your email address. Ignore everything else. Okay, so everyone see these graphs? Okay, so let's take, let's take, uh, sometimes I like to mix it up. Let's take hydrocarbons first. So these hydrocarbons are, not surprisingly, combinations of hydrogen atoms and carbon atoms. Now what happens to be true of these kinds of, of molecules is that they store an enormous, enormous amount of energy in a very stable way, particularly with oil, uh, in a very small space. So they store an enormous amount of oil, uh, of energy in a very small space. And we can think of a food analogy. So um, you know, when you look at a food label, it has protein, it has carbohydrate, and it has fat, right? And if you, alcohol has calories as well. Which of those three has the most calories per, per gram? Fat. fat. Okay, so oil chemically is very much like fat. I mean, it's why, it's, you know, it's vegetable oil and, and petroleum oil or rock oil. And so what it, what it means is this is a very dense way uh, of storing things. It's a very dense way of storing energy. So oil is one of the most dense, it's really the most dense substance we have for energy, that's why we use it for transportation. So it, whenever you're doing something where you need to carry your fuel with you, you almost always use oil if it requires a lot of energy. So this is why basically every plane in the world uses oil fuel and every large piece of farm equipment uses oil fuel. So it's got this, it's got this aspect where it's this amazingly dense source of energy and it's naturally that way. So we don't even have, you have to do a little bit to it, but it's naturally very uh, dense. So that's one aspect of it. But then the other aspect, you have to understand where it comes from, or at least where a lot of it comes from. And there, there's some controversy over how much of the fossil fuel or hydrocarbon in the world comes from ancient dead plants, but at least a lot of, lot of it, if not most of it, does. And so basically what happens is 
plants have a certain amount of energy. You know, you eat lettuce, it has a certain amount of energy. To simplify it, over time what happens is plants pile up on each other almost like a compost heap. And over time, t uh, uh, pressure builds up, which means temperature builds up. What happens is all the water gets squeezed out and they get compressed and compressed and compressed until they're more like fat than carbohydrate. And so they become these very dense things and they take the form of coal, which is more at the surface, oil and gas, which are, uh, which are lower. And so, but here's the thing. The, the fact that it's these high-density hydrocarbons and the fact that it's plant-based leads to both the strengths of fossil fuels but also the potential weaknesses. So the strength of it is it's got these hydrocarbons, which are these amazing ways of, of naturally storing energy, and there are huge amounts of them. I mean, huge amounts. Ten, we don't even know, but tens at least, maybe hundreds of times more than we've used in the entire history of civilization in the Earth. That doesn't mean we can get at all of them, but uh, we're pretty good at it. But in any case, there's tons of them. Like lots and lots and lots of them. So and and because they're naturally compressed and stored energy, it's fairly cheap to get energy from them. You don't have to do a lot to get energy from them. So that means that's why they're our main source of cheap plant for reliable energy. They have this characteristic. But at the same time, they've got these other aspects that can be problematic, or at least we need to investigate. So one is so the first one is they give cheap plant for reliable energy. But the second is if you notice in the hydrocarbon. So when we burn a hydrocarbon that's oxidizing it, you add oxygen to it. What happens when you burn a hydrocarbon? What, what comes out? CO2 and water. CO2, water, and energy, right? So the, the CO2 is the important for the second one. So the energy is, is great, right? But then, and then you have H2O, but then you have CO2, and CO2 is more notable than H2O because there's already a ton of H2O in the atmosphere, and there's a relatively small amount of CO2. So we can make a meaningful difference in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So... And we, when we can isolate CO2 in a lab, we find that the more CO2 you put in the air, the more warming uh, will exist. We'll talk about how much, but that's, that's just a basic scientific experiment you can perform. The, the third thing is, has to do with the plant base. So when we burn, if you burned a pure hydrocarbon, like pure hydrogen and carbon, it would all be energy, uh, CO2 and H2O. But what happens is because they were plants, there are lots of impurities in plants. Plants contain all kinds of things in them uh, that when burned might not be very good. So for instance, there's a certain amount of mercury that can be in plants. And so th those get naturally stored in the fossil fuel. So when you burn it, you can have a certain uh, amount of mercury going there. Sulfur is a big one. Sulfur, you know, exists naturally in plants. So in a place like, like Los Angeles, uh, particularly several decades ago, Los Angeles is about 60 miles north of where I live, uh, what happens is if you burn enough high sulfur material in a small enough space, you get smog. Right? And so that can, and we see that a lot in China, what's happening with their coal plants. And then the third, the, 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 the fourth aspect that's a concern is that even though there's a, a lot of this stuff and there's a lot of dispute about how much, it, what happens is because it's plant-based, because it came from this very, very long process that takes a long time, we use this stuff much more quickly than it replenishes. So you hear the term renewable sometimes. Uh, oil does renew, coal does renew, gas does renew in that sense, but it renews much more slowly than we use it. So if you were to run an indefinite time horizon, at some point you'd run down on it if you did nothing else. So that's the, th so the three big concerns are the warming concern, the pollution concern, and the depletion concern. Does that make sense to people? So, so I think it's important just to look at, see how, how both the, the potential benefits and the potential risks of fossil fuels all flow from the basic nature uh, of the thing that we're, we're dealing with. And so then the question is, the question of the book and the question tonight is, 
how do all of these add up? So we need to look at the impact of using fossil fuels versus not using fossil fuels on um, access to energy, on the livability of our climate, on the quality of our environment, and on future energy resources. Now, I'm going to focus on access to energy and climate because I think those are the two biggest issues. And I want to you know, take as much time as anyone wants for questions. I'm happy to elaborate on the pollution and the depletion issue. But I think today, overwhelmingly, the thing people are concerned about is climate. So, and these are all complex issues. So I'm going to delve into that most importantly. All right. So let's look at access to energy. So here is a graph of fossil fuel use from 1980 to the present. Can anyone guess why I use 1980 as a reference point? That would be a, it's actually the beginning of Alex's life. <laughs> well, I kind of like the way I think of it. I mean, this is serious. The way I think of it is my I, I'm the first of four children and my parents. Um, you know, I, reading the literature back then, I, I would read about how my parents were being told, you need to get off fossil fuels. And they did not do that at all, as you can see from this graph. So I like to think, well, were they making the right decision or not? So 1980, compared to today, uh, we are using 80% more globally, 80% more fossil fuels than we did back in 1980. So we're using slightly more of other things, but you can see overwhelmingly it's fossil fuels. So that means in our civilization today, 87% of the time a machine is being used, it's coal, oil, or natural gas powering. So that's very significant. And given how significant that is, and given how big a trend that is, and also given, um, and, and the first chapter of the book, which is free online, gives a lot of examples of this, given that even in the 70s and 80s, people were claiming back then that fossil fuels could be replaced with solar. It's worth asking, why is this? And, and, and taking it seriously, maybe there's something really good about fossil fuels that makes us use a lot of them. Because we often assume, oh, well, we can just get off of them. It's, it's so easy. But as I saw when I studied the early history of oil, it's not so easy. Some technologies scale well and can produce cheap, plentiful, reliable energy for the world. And some are not able to. So there's this, I remembered forever this uh, Saturday Night Live bit that I thought made the case perfectly. And I saw it, and, and I, I remembered it for whatever reason because I thought it was funny. And then once I started studying energy, six years later, I remember, oh, wow, this, this guy got it. So this is Jimmy Fallon. And he's going to explain, he's going to make the world's best case against solar and wind and for fossil fuels. And I'd also argue nuclear and hydro, although he has no idea that he's doing it. Uh, and he's actually very anti-fracking, but it's only a matter of time. <laughs> All right, ready? New Scientist magazine reported on Wednesday that in the future, cars can be powered by hazelnuts. That's encouraging, considering an eight-ounce jar of hazelnuts costs about $9. <laughs> yeah, I got an idea for a car that runs on bald eagle heads and Fabergé eggs. <laughs> Okay, so why is that relevant? Well, here, here's an interesting point. Hazelnut energy is renewable energy, right? Hazelnut is getting, hazelnuts are getting their power from the sun. We often hear we should use the sun for energy because the sun is free and it's forever and there's lots of it. So why, why isn't hazelnut energy, it's renewable, doesn't, isn't, that, isn't that what we should want from energy? Why doesn't it work? So that's, I found that really fascinating. And here's, here's the issue. It's because... There, you, you have to separate two things. One is the input, any of the inputs to energy, including the raw energy source, which is like the sun or oil or whatever. 
and then two is the process by which we harness the energy. And energy is always a process. There's nothing in nature that just you can like plug into a computer and it'll run it. We always have to transform the raw energy to the usable energy. So the question is not how much does the sun cost any more than how much does the oil underground cost. It doesn't really cost anything, but it costs money to get it. And so the question is how much does it cost to get it? So this is the way I think of it. Every energy technology is a resource intensive process and some are more resource intensive than others. This is why different, some technologies don't work at all. Some take a long time to work. Uh, some are always better. So there's the mining process. There's processing, manufacturing, transportation, operation, maintenance, dispo and disposal. So when we're looking at different technologies, we have to look at the whole process. This is part of thinking carefully. We can't just say, oh, the sun is free. This is superficial. That's one element. That could be a benefit, all things being equal. We need to look at the whole process before we make these big decisions. So I want to show you uh, a graph that I, I was able to get. So this is the best available data in the world, which you have to pay a bunch of money for, uh, from Germany, which is the world leader in, uh, in solar and one of the, I think, top three in wind. And Germany has really spent more of its, of its money than anyone else to be a solar and wind uh, economy. And you might hear statistics about how Germany gets 50% of its energy from solar and wind. And, uh, I'll show you the actual truth. So this is the, this is the uh, data that we have. So I'll just explain it to you. So on the top, you have this is how much, on average, every month uh, electricity is produced. Now, just as a, as a qualification, uh, electricity, you know, what this room is powered by, that's in many economies only 50% of the energy because electricity f isn't powering most vehicles and it's not powering most heating. So 50, this is only even 50% of Germany's energy. So none of, their, none of their heating, none of their vehicles are powered by solar and wind. But this is just electricity. So this is even half. And so this is the average on top. The reason it's average is just because unfortunately this is the, the best granularity you can get. But you can get better granularity on the bottom. And what you notice is we have solar and we have wind and we see how they add up. Because sometimes you might hear, well, Solar might not always be on, but the wind will adjust for it and vice versa. And what we find is that there's a huge amount of variability and volatility. And what happens in particular is that you notice in some periods of time, particularly the colder parts of the year where Germany, given where it's located in the world, needs the most energy, it has the least energy available to it from solar and wind. So what happens? Well, the people can't go without energy. So what they need is they need to make sure 100% of the time they have as much energy as they would need as if there was no solar and wind, or if there were only 3% solar and wind. So what they're doing as a result is they're building up record coal capacity as they spend all of this money on solar and wind. So they have the capacity so that if they shut down all their solar and wind, they could run their grid just fine. So the solar and wind are doing the vast, vast majority, uh, I'm sorry, the, va the vast, vast minority of the work, and it's all being propped up overwhelmingly by fossil fuels. So if somebody tells you that Germany is proof that, that these other technologies can power civilization, I'd say it's, it's proof of the opposite. It's proof that when you're dealing with unreliable forms of energy where the inputs are unreliable, what happens is it's, it doesn't work well because to what, what you would need is to make this reliable, you either, need to, you either need life support from fossil fuels, but then that defeats the purpose. Or what you would need is, an, is a very, very elaborate storage system where you would sort of store up huge amounts of energy from the sun and the wind so that then when they die down, you could deploy them. And, and right now, the solar panels and windmills and infrastructure are already expensive without that. And so that's why there's not one place in the world where this is done. Not because people don't want to do it, but because it's insanely resource intensive. So if we get the energy as a process, 
this is a very resource inefficient process, which means if we tried to do it, it would cost lots of resources, which means people would be poor. So the, like, what form of energy we use isn't in a matter of personal preference or what I like or, oh, we can make it work. It's a matter of can you find a resource efficient process? Because if you can't, then people suffer. And when you're talking about lack of energy, people suffer across the board. So this should be taken very seriously when people talk about energy. And one thing I want to note, which we'll come, that we'll come back to, is that when people talk about replacing fossil fuels, they almost always talk about solar and wind. And yet, if you look at the data, far more promising are hydropower and, uh, and even more than that, nuclear power, because those can provide reliable uh, energy. And to give an example in my home state, uh, Governor Jerry Brown, I wrote a column about him today, he is interesting because he is, claims that he's really concerned about CO2 emissions, and yet he was the leader in California in the 1970s opposing nuclear power in California, which if it had been built, would have reduced our CO2 emissions. So it's really interesting, I want to come back to it, why is it that people who claim to be really concerned about CO2 emissions oppose not only fossil fuels, but also nuclear and hydro. So I'm going to argue there's a different goal underlying that than really concern about CO2 and climate. Uh, I believe most people who care about it are concerned about climate, but I don't think the leaders are. So if we look at you know, Germany, basically my conclusion is if we had tried to do anything that we're talking about today, people talk about 80% bans on fossil fuels, I mean, anything resembling that, it would be horrific. And in particular, it would be horrific for the poorest people in the world, because those are the people who have almost no energy, and they need energy to have industrialized machine-based economies. And, and even though we hear, you know, we hear about China and India, and we hear almost all negative things, which I think is part of the bad moral reasoning. If you look overall, they're much better, and they're also in a position now to improve their environmental quality in lots of ways because they're much wealthier now. So if you look at life expectancy, even despite all the smog and everything we hear about in China and India, what you find is that it's going up dramatically. And during this period, uh, they're getting almost all of their energy from coal and oil. Those went up five times in this period. You'll hear a lot on the news about how they're investing so much in wind and solar. Those are a drop in the bucket. Those are, are very much supplemental. They're not the core of the energy they're using. So if they hadn't had that energy, they couldn't have, they hadn't had that access, they couldn't have afforded it. If you look at income, income is a really crucial uh, measure of human well-being. You see their income is going up dramatically as they're using more fossil fuels. So, if we're then thinking in terms of our moral reasoning, we need to look at what's the benefit of using fossil fuels versus not. The benefit in terms of access to energy is if you are free to use fossil fuels, you have more, more people have more access to more energy, which means more years to their life added on, and, and that's across billions of people. So right now there's no industry that can come close to the fossil fuel industry, whatever its problems, in terms of producing cheap, plentiful, reliable energy for the world. So I'm going to talk about climate in a second, but I want to just stop and observe that it's notable that our, in our discussion of the issue, this is almost never mentioned and taken seriously. So I'm not saying anything yet about whether there's a huge climate problem or not. Even if there is a huge climate problem, if we were to dramatically restrict fossil fuels today or in the near future, we would have an energy catastrophe. So let's say, let's say there was a huge climate problem related to CO2. I think the public's attitude should not be, yay, we get to get off fossil fuels, but it, it would be a tragedy because we'd have an energy catastrophe and a climate catastrophe. So I think the emotions that we have in our culture where people just, oh, I hate fossil fuels, I think it's completely inappropriate. Um, I think it should be, this isn't what the value that it produces is incredibly value. We should be terrified uh, of losing it. And, and if there's a climate catastrophe, that would be one of the greatest tragedies uh, ever because of the climate catastrophe and because of what we would lose with the energy. 
So now I want to apply the same moral framework, the same method of reasoning to the issue of, of climate. And, and I'm going to use very different terminology than you've heard, and I'm going to explain why. So when I think of climate, people ask, you know, do you believe in climate change? I, I think it's a very sloppy kind of question. Um, so climate change or climate impact is a byproduct or side effect, as we showed earlier, of using fossil fuels. So when you look at a byproduct or a side effect, to evaluate it, you have to look at the whole thing. So let's say there's a controversy over vaccines, right? Which you probably know about, particularly in California. When you're looking at the side, when you're looking at the side effects of vaccines, a you have to look at it very carefully, and b you need to look at it in in the context of the positive effect. You can't just say, oh, vaccines have side effects. Do you believe in vaccine side effects? Uh, if you don't, you're a vaccine side effect denier, right? That's not that's not how you would think of it. You say, no, I need to look at the big picture. I want to look at the effects and the side effects very carefully. So I think it makes as much sense to call someone a, a vaccine side effect denier as it does to call me or anyone else a climate change denier. Almost everyone I've ever heard of who's a quote climate change denier is somebody who believes that fossil fuels have an impact on climate, but that overall the benefits of fossil fuels far outweigh the negative. So whatever your position ends up being, I think we need that kind of respect in the debate. If someone says something that's just outright unscientific, then obviously you have to, to criticize them, but the, the debate is inappropriate. So that's one aspect of it, that it's sloppy. But the other is that it's not really focused on what matters. And you know, what matters most to me is, is human life. So when you talk about climate change, do fossil fuels cause climate change? What I'm concerned about is do they cause negative change or positive change for human beings? So let's say that you know, in, in the early 20th century, a lot of people had hoped that we would warm the planet much more than actually it has warmed because in general, people tend to prefer warm climate. So let's say it turned out I'm not saying this is true, that we warmed climate and that overall it was much better. Or that, as we'll discuss, putting more CO2 in the atmosphere helped plant life because plants eat CO2, uh, and that was overall better. So the point is that change is not bad or good. It's neutral. What we have to look at is, is the change positive or not. So what I want to look at is not climate change per se, but climate change is an aspect of climate livability or climate danger. And I think when you look at it in that perspective, it changes... Uh, the issue a lot. So here are the three variables. If you want to look at how do fossil fuels impact the livability of our climate, I think there are three big things. And chapters uh, four and five of my book are, are sort of in this, this uh, order. So the first is the one we're, we're familiar with called the greenhouse effect. So we have to look at when we add more CO2 to the atmosphere, and we've changed the composition of the atmosphere from 0.03% CO2 to 0.04% CO2. Um, we have to look at how does that impact temperature around the globe, and then how does that impact other aspects of climate, like storms, sea levels, that kind of thing. So that's one thing that's key. Another thing that's almost never mentioned is we have to look at what is the effect of, on plant life of putting more CO2 in the air. Because if you put more CO2 in a greenhouse, the plants grow more. So we have to be open to positive effects, not just negative. We can't just assume if we are, if we are creating changes negative, we have to be open to either side. And then the third, and this is the most neglected, is what I call the energy effect. And this is, if we care about the livability of climate, we have to recognize that climate, that natural climate danger is an enormous problem that's faced societies throughout history and that we need lots and lots of energy to solve it. So the societies with most energy are the ones that can build an infrastructure that protects them from climate. So if you care about people being safe from climate, it's not enough to not impact the climate. You have to have lots of energy to give your, to make yourself safe from climate. So we have to look at each of these and see 
how much does each matter? So let's look at uh, greenhouse effect. So one interesting aspect of the greenhouse effect and the view that this is leading to a climate catastrophe is that this is a very old view. Uh, really, this particular view is about 40 years old. And the first chapter of my book is called The Secret History of Fossil Fuels. And, and it focuses on how every single claim we hear today as cutting edge was actually made minimum 30, but more like 30 plus 40 years ago. And so what I have is even many of today's leading thinkers, so you might not know these names, but Paul Ehrlich, um, James Hansen, um, John Holdren, who's President Obama's science advisor, I'll show you a couple of these, have been predicting for a long time that by putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, we're going to lead to a climate catastrophe. It's been, the green aspect effect has been known about for well over 100 years, so it's not news to anyone. These predictions have been going on for a long time, which is great in terms of, as moral philosophers, because we have a track record. We can look at, oh, how have these claims fared throughout history? It's always easier to, to evaluate an old claim than a new claim. So let's look at this. This is James Hansen. So in 1986, he rose to prominence by predicting that this, which means that from the years 2000 to 2010, it would, the temperature, average temperatures around the world would rise 2 to 4 degrees Fahrenheit, which that would be really, really big because that would be way bigger than all the temperature rise in 100 plus years before, I mean, significantly larger. So what actually happened is, in the entire history, uh, you know, since the beginning of industrial civilization, there's been 1.4 degrees in the entire. And in that period, I'll show you the graph in a second, but there was a, it was essentially flat, and it certainly slowed. So he predicted this incredible spike, and it flattened. And yet, when I read news stories today, uh, one of the latest news stories is about how James Hansen predicts record sea level rises, and they say nobody has been more right on climate than James Hansen. And that's the lie. I mean, that's, that's just dishonest. So we need to hold everyone to their track record, including me. You should always feel free to Google anyone, including me, and say, what were we saying 10 years ago? And if we were wrong, did we apologize for it? Hansen didn't apologize. Now, part of, part of what I like to do with all these issues is always ask, what is X? So we, I asked at the beginning, what is climate change? What are fossil fuels? And I want to ask now, what is the greenhouse effect? Because when we, you hear the greenhouse effect, you hear, oh, it, it makes things warmer. The more CO2, the warmer, right? But there's a question of how much warmer. Because in math, we have different kinds of mathematical functions. So let's say it's, a, it's an exponential function where every new molecule of CO2 makes the atmosphere hotter than the last one did. Well, if you have any function like that that has no feed, negative feedbacks on it, you're, I didn't mean this pun, but toast, right? right? You're just gone. Because if you can't stop, I mean, that's unstoppable. That is a pure catastrophe, right? Then you could have, let's say, a linear function Right, which is where each molecule of CO2 warms the same amount as the last, and that can be a serious cause for concern depending on the function. But it turns out that the greenhouse effect, when we can isolate it, is not either of those. It's called the logarithmic function. So that means each, each molecule of CO2, if you isolate it, warms less than the last. So I think of it, there's a lot of ways to think about this, but one is just imagine you're driving your car, and say, I don't know what, kind of cars you guys have. Let's say you have a Honda Civic or something like that. And you're driving at 55 miles an hour and you want to make the car go faster. So you start pushing down the pedal one millimeter at a time, one millimeter at a time. Well, the car, each, each little press is going to move the car less fast than the last one until at some point the car is not going to go any faster, right? It's not like your Civic is going to go 500 miles an hour if you just press hard enough. And so that's the same kind of dynamic here. Each one warms less than the last. Now, there's an aspect to this that's important that is in um, 
I discuss at length in Moral Case, where there are questions about, well, what happens when this effect is not in a lab but is in the atmosphere? And uh, my basic conclusion is, well, if people who predict that in the atmosphere it's going to lead to a dramatic acceleration of warming, that is completely refuted so far by the actual history. So if you look at, if you look at this graph, what's interesting is this is from 1850 to the present. So what you see is that um, you know, until about 1940, you have a, a certain amount of warming, and then you have a slightly larger period of warming. But this is bef the first one is before major CO2 emissions, and the second one is after major CO2 emissions. And 30% of our CO2 emissions in history have come in the last 15 years or so, 15 or 20 years. And yet in that period, there's been next to no warming. There's disputes about how much, but as we've used dramatically more CO2, there's been less warming, which, which indicates that in the atmosphere, CO2 functions much like it does in the lab, where it warms, but it has a minor warming effect. And to put this in context, because we see these graphs, right, and this looks like, oh my gosh, that's still pretty warm. I'm a little bit scared. But you notice that, Notice the, the values. The values there, are very, these are all fractions of a degree Celsius, which means slightly larger fractions of a degree Fahrenheit. So if you put it in the context, this is from 1850 to the present, of how much it's warmed, what's actually happened is it's warmed 1.4 degrees through that entire period, which is, is almost undetectable to us, except we have sophisticated instruments. So what this means is that if you compare this to New York, which is, you know, New York has this temperature range, we, in, in daily life, we encounter this huge range of temperatures, and what, it, what global warming means is just that the range shifts slightly upward. But if we can cope with the lower range, we can cope with the upper range, unless there's these other huge negative effects like storms, and uh, I, I document in the book why that's not true and, and how that's not true. But this is at least the runaway warming claim has completely fallen flat, and the people making it have not owned up to it. And so. People can tell me, you know, you can say, oh, you're not a climate scientist. Well, I'm a human being, and I can tell when so if somebody is being dishonest or if they make a wrong prediction, they need to own up to it. Uh, any human being can tell it. You don't have to be a philosopher. You just need to be a human being and honest. So that's, that's the greenhouse effect. So my view of the greenhouse effect, the evidence we have so far is very moderate, very manageable, certainly no reason to deprive people of the energy they need to live. So let's go more quickly through the fertilizer effect. So this is an interesting one because we never talk about it, which shows we tend to only look at the negatives of fossil fuels and not the positives. But if we isolate in, you know, in a greenhouse more and more CO2, what we find is the tree grows more and more and more. What we found around the Earth is that we have more plant growth as we have more CO2 in the atmosphere. And when isolated, pretty much every crop you can imagine does better with more CO2, which is why in a greenhouse they put three times the amount of CO2 in a greenhouse than naturally exists in the air because CO2, all things being equal, is good for uh, plants. So this is something that should be mentioned. Now the final aspect I want to talk about is what I call the energy effect, which is how energy from, from cheap, plentiful, reliable fossil fuels actually makes us almost climate-proof now. And this is the opposite of the view. What we hear is that climate-related deaths are going to skyrocket. And this is an old claim. So in 1985, John Holdren, who is President Obama's leading science advisor, so maybe the most influential scientist in in the country said that in 2020, climate-induced, uh, you know, carbon-related famine, CO2-related famine would kill a billion people. That's a really serious thing. So it's, we're five years away from that now. What's actually happened in the world is that we have a population of seven billion and it's better fed than ever. And malnutrition has gone down by 40%. And that can be directly attributed 
to fossil fuels in the form of fossil fuels are where we get our fertilizers. We can talk about some of the controversies related to that. Uh, and also all the, all the fuel for all the equipment. So a modern harvester that's powered by diesel fuel from oil, you can get enough wheat for 500,000 loaves of bread in a day. If you don't have that caliber of energy, you can't do it and people, people starve. So this, this was exactly wrong. But he wasn't just wrong about famine. He was wrong about every form of damage. So we have a statistic that's almost never mentioned, uh, which is fortunately, I think I could take some credit for making people start mentioning this on TV, which is called climate-related deaths. I didn't make up the statistic. It's collected by something called the International Disaster Database. But what it measures is the most important thing, which is how many people are dying from these causes. You hear climate change is worse than ever. You hear about a given storm. It's blamed on climate change. It's blamed on fossil fuels. That doesn't make any sense to me. You need to show me what's the big picture data that overall things are getting more dangerous. Because we've been hearing for 30, 40 years, it's getting worse and worse and worse. So what's the actual data? And this really shocked me. Because when I, when I came across this data, what I thought would be that, uh, what I thought is that climate would be more dangerous now, that we'd have more climate-related deaths, but that it would be nothing compared to all the, the lives that had been saved. But it turns out it was completely wrong. What turns out is that actually climate-related deaths of all kinds have plummeted, absolutely plummeted. So the more fossil fuels we, we've used, the safer we've become. And that's a function of CO2 is not creating some massive new climate danger, but fossil fuels and the energy that, that billions of people need uh, from them, that, that makes us safer. That is things like air conditioning, which we take for granted, heating, which we take for granted. Uh, Crop transport has almost eliminated drought-related deaths. Drought-related deaths around the world in the last 80 years have gone down 99.98%. In the U.S., they've basically disappeared because we have modern technology. It, so what we can do with energy is, is just amazing, and we have to figure this into our thinking. So I like to put it this way. Fossil fuels don't take a safe climate and make it dangerous. They take a dangerous climate and make it far, far safer. And so this is a... This is kind of the end of my perspective on these two. So, so the, to go back to the fundamental, we want to look at carefully at both the positives and negatives of how fossil fuels improve human life. What we find with access to energy is that they're absolutely indispensable and underappreciated. And then we find with climate that they're absolutely indispensable and unappreciated. So what I would say with absolute certainty at this point is that if you, you, know, that if you want more people around the world to be safe from climate, you absolutely need to give them more energy from fossil fuels. That's what's going to keep them safe. That, that is the absolute uh, key to it. And all the data show that the countries with the least fossil fuels are the ones that are the least protected from climate, even though they're, they're still way more protected than they ever have been. So um, I want to take questions in a minute. I mentioned that there's the environmental quality issue um, and there's a resource issue. Feel free to ask about that. But I think the basic framework should be clear. I'm happy to talk about um, either of those. Um, and uh, let me just, uh, so I gave out a handout, um, and the handout is just, if you're interested in more information, particularly you can get the, the first chapter of the book for free, and then certain videos of ours, uh, and also just stay in touch with me. And the reason I'd, I'd encourage you to do this is this. I, you know, I went to college, I did not have these views at all, but I think more importantly, I never had the chance to have them. I was never exposed to them. I never heard about this data. Um, unfortunately, the risk of offending people, universities can very much be monopolies when it comes to certain ideas. Uh, you know, people try to be open, but I don't think it's I don't think it's the case. So 
if, if you find any of this at all intriguing, um, you know, I hope you, I hope you investigate, I hope you challenge it, I hope you challenge, and it makes you challenge what you've heard, uh, but I also hope it makes you challenge what I've said, and if you can find something wrong in what I've said, either here or in the future, you can tell me in the Q&A period, uh, you can write me, because ultimately, it should, it's not about fossil fuels, uh, it's, it's about human life, and it, if it's about that, it's about thinking very carefully, morally, about right and wrong, which means always thinking about the big picture. Um, always looking at the positives and negatives, always being uh, very careful. So thanks so much for being a great audience, and let's do questions. Yes. Hey, um, I'm from West Virginia, actually. Uh, I'm really only one generation out of the field, so I, mm -hmm. I can definitely say that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here if not for coal. Uh -huh. I, I mean, I definitely am here with certain directives also. But I guess my, my question is, um, you know, I work in a place like Gallup County. It's five hours from where you grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and life expectancy is 15 years less, and they haven't had clean water in 50 years. So I guess my chief concern is, like, with the way fossil fuels do their business. Mm -hmm. But do you think that that um, gets depletion of human life of people who work in coal mines mm -hmm. and who work in the fossil fuel industry is worth um, worth the kind of, I guess, progress that you're, like, seeing as like, Okay, so there are a couple, a couple of aspects. Could people hear that? Uh, I'm getting different reactions, so I don't know. I'll repeat half of it. <laughs> but this, so there's a couple aspects uh, raised. One were some specific statistical claims about a certain area of West Virginia. And then I remember the third part was, am I willing to pay that price? And then I forget the second. What was the second part? Um, it was that people have a lower life expectancy. Oh, okay, they have a lower have life expectancy. No right. So, so Whenever, whenever we see, I mean, whenever we see a statistic like this, first of all, we have to investigate: is it true? Now we're all here, and we, none of you have independent access to this, so you can go Google West Virginia coal lives or whatever and, and investigate the data. But the second aspect, which we can talk about here easily, is: is this a problem that's a misuse or abuse of a technology, or is this a problem that is inherent in a technology? So, for example, right now, CO2 emissions from fossil fuels are essentially inherent in the technology. There's no economic way of preventing them. Whereas I think if you look at coal, if you look at different places around the world, there are places with coal miners with very high life expectancies. There are places, even uh, even if you look at China, in the city, you have places in Beijing and Shanghai that have la uh, larger life expectancies than the U.S. If you take, say, North Dakota, uh, which is overwhelmingly powered by coal, they have some of the cleanest air in the United States. So what you find is that when we look at these negative examples, there's what, what I call the, the abuse-use fallacy. And this is in, in Chapter 7. People say, well, because it can be abused, therefore it shouldn't be used. And my view is, if it's abused, you should stop using it, and you should use it better. Now, if it's something that's inherent, and let's say it's inherently negative, then, you know, then really the people have to decide. But you know, my experience, I definitely didn't grow up in West Virginia, uh, but from I probably met thousands of coal miners at this point, you know, their definite view is, I want to be free to mine coal, and I believe this is overall the best for my life, and I believe in, in I respect that opinion. Now, in terms of the cities and the municipalities, they need to make decisions, and I think that should be done uh, locally. But it's, I don't, just because something is abused, that's a reason to look into it, but it doesn't mean there's not a good way of using it. Hi, um, so my name's Hannah. I'm the president of Wellesley's largest student sustainability organization, and I have kind of two questions for you. Um, my first one is, is you said when talking about climate change deniers that you thought overwhelmingly people who name themselves climate change deniers don't actually... They don't name themselves. They get, or they get, get named that. They get don't named actually that. not believe um, in an impact of like CO2 
um, in the environment causing like, of the professionals warming. yes right so I'm just wondering how you kind of have felt as somebody who's um, very much been an advocate for fossil fuels in this case or through this part of your argument um, being part of an or being propped up by what is largely like a industry or a political scheme of people trying to hide those um, scientific facts. I know certainly on the political scale, um, the conversation has really been dominated by people coming from what I think is a pretty archaic understanding of science. So I'm just wondering how you, with this very critical, like academic way of looking at these issues and balancing the mountain calculations, feel about that and whether it's helped or hurt it. Wait, wait can I? That's a good enough and elaborate enough question where, uh, and if you have, they want to let you ask another one, perfect, but l let me address that one. So there's a couple of aspects uh, to that question. So so there's the aspect of how do I feel about being sort of propped up by this uh, industry. Um, so that's, for me, biographically, that doesn't happen to be true at all. But I want to act as if I was, because I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing if you have conviction. So with the conviction that I have and the study that I've had, if I decided I want to go work for X company as a lobbyist, I would regard that as an absolutely moral choice to make. Because uh, what a lobbyist is, is somebody who argues for certain government policies in, in a certain direction. And if I were arguing on behalf of a company, assume, assuming I, I admired the particular company, uh, I would think that was absolutely moral. And the same thing is true for science, by the way. Historically, science was overwhelmingly funded by industry. And the way you judge it is as good science or bad science. And there's horrific science funded by the government, and there's at least some good science funded by the government. Same thing for universities. Um, so I, have, I don't have this, the, the bias against things associated with the fossil fuel industry. I have no particular fear of it. I happen to have a business model where I never represent anybody because that's my personal preference, but I have nothing against the people uh, who do. The question is then, have they, um, you said it's uh, bastardization of science, I forget the exact word. Uh, I, I would dispute the overwhelming history of that. I think overwhelmingly what the industry has done is, abs is exactly not told a careful story about the issue. What they've often done is behind the scenes funded people, but and, and many of whom I think are good scientists, uh, many of whom I know are good scientists, some aren't, maybe aren't, I don't know, but, but they have not publicly explained why they were doing it or what the justification was, so it looked very shady to people like you and other people. So I think they have culpability there. I think if you're funding scientific research, you should say publicly, this is why I'm funding it, this is why I think it's good, this is why I think uh, there's a, there's a case, and there's an interesting issue with, um, you've probably heard of the Koch brothers, or this interesting uh, case study. Well, because it's really interesting because they are um, viewed as sort of the most negative people, but they're, they're sort of the least financially self-interested people as actors at all. Like, they're, they, they're very free market, so they don't want subsidies. And they one thing they did was they sponsored a guy named uh, Richard Muller, um, to, to create, um, it's called BEST, which is a Berkeley Temperature Study Center. Um, and, and the findings of that were viewed as uh, at least somewhat critical to the fossil fuel industry, whether they were or not is a wholly different issue. But in any case, they said publicly to their credit, look, we thought this was important research. We funded it. It can turn out however it wants. I think that's a model for how you should, uh, how you should do it. realizing here, but Mary Koch, uh, the mother, the matriarch of the Koch family, went to Wellesley College, so if you didn't know that, <laughs> and donated a lot of money, so there's Koch money already here, so uh, <laughs> if you don't know that, it's good to know. Um, let 
Um, hi, uh, my name is Alex Q, and I just had a question about your last graphic. Is this not on? Sure. Okay. And I just had a question about your last graph about climate-related deaths. Okay. Um, I was wondering what you actually um, define a climate-related death as and then how you can make the claim that they've decreased if there's no definite uh, definition of what a climate-related death Because there's is. an exact definition. I give the exact one in the book, but I can give you the... It's just... It's, it's an, what happens is it's an aggregation of categories that, we, that are climate-related. So storms, floods wildfire, extreme heat, extreme cold. So what they do is, to the best of their ability, they tally data from around the world, and then they say from, you know, from year to year, how has it changed? Now, this is going to be imperfect, uh, but the trend is very, very striking. So if you notice, for example, um, you know, night before 1920, it goes down. Why does it go down before 1920? Well, because you have almost no data back then. You're collecting less and less data. And uh, by the way, this is this is a this is way understating the point because this isn't adjusted for population. So let's take the 30s. I think in 1931, 1931, 1933, a couple of years in the 30s, when we is the first time we have semi-complete data where we have under one third of today's population, we have three million climate-related deaths. Let's say 1931. So that's the equivalent of 10 million today. In 2013, which is called the worst year ever for climate, we had under 30,000. So it's, it's shocking. It's not, oh, you might have, even if you missed a couple zeros, it's still dramatic. I don't know how to, how to do this the best with the microphone, so I'm just going to pass it around. You could maybe move the microphone to the people with the questions. So this is just a follow-up to, your, to your answer. Do you have any data about um, climate-related injury to, like, well, uh, so there's, there's, there's a couple of categories of this, and it's a really important kind of question. Um, so climate-related injury, or the thing that more often comes up is climate-related economic uh, damages. Um, those are, I, I've never heard of a climate-related injury. I mean, you'd imagine it would correlate strongly with climate-related death. If it didn't, that would be a good sign, too, that you could sort of protect a lot of people from dying who otherwise would. Uh, climate-related damages, there's a whole literature disputing it. It's, it's almost impossible to know. Um, for, for many, many, many reasons. Like death is sort of a very binary, absolute thing, whereas with damages you have all sorts of weird kinds of uh, incentives. So, for example, there's a huge um, over-reporting of climate-related damage because people have insurance. So if you live in a, in a climate-prone area, you have, people, um, you have people who say, oh, this amount of damage was done to my house, this and that. So, there, you can read the literature on that and see what you think of the different people on it. I like deaths because it's a much sort of clear-cut statistic, and, and it's the thing that matters most. And, and it's also the thing that's being claimed. That's important. What they're claiming is not you're going to lose some money, because then you could do a straight financial profit loss. They're saying you are going to die. And what, what often you hear is um, Bill McKibbin or Naomi Klein or some of these people say, what, is it, what good – Naomi Klein has this book with similar colors to mine called This Changes Everything. And in the beginning of it, she says approximately, what's the good of an economy if you're all drowned underwater? So that's what the, she and others have been claiming forever is we're going to be drowning. So that's what I want to address most of all. Yeah. <laughs> 
Is this a tradition I'm not familiar with? Yeah, that, means, that means the majority opinion is, is indicated by snapping. Okay, yeah. well, so let's... It, let, it used to be something like that. Okay, well, I'm glad. I don't know if this knowledge is going to be uh, transferable to any other venue. But, yeah, so this is an important thing. So um, let, let's talk about the... So this, this often goes under the label of, of uh, correlation and, and causation, right? How Sort of what is the relationship? And there's a... It's almost become a cliche to say, well, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation. And that's absolutely true in the sense that to show a correlation does not prove causation. But what's also notable is that causation always involves correlation. So one of the ways we discover causation is we see very, very, very strong uh, correlations or very, very strong patterns of different things. And then what we do is we investigate and we inductively usually determine the mechanisms of causation. So if you notice, uh, I showed you certain graphs today, but the vast majority of the time that I spent was giving causal explanations of how energy improves human life. So the core of it is that energy gives us the ability to use machines to improve our lives. So what we find then is that improves every aspect of life. So I mentioned in agriculture how it makes us more productive. So you can see a correlation between oil use and agricultural productivity, but you can also understand the causation. So when you look at, um, and, and then there's a more fundamental thing, and, and uh, chapter two of the book is really all about this, that energy is, is causally linked to everything beneficial because it's powering all the machines, but also as a consequence of powering all, all the machines, it is unleashing huge amounts of time. And if you look at so much of human innovation, including in the realm of medicine, for example, it's all about smart people having lots of time to do things. Even what all of you are doing here, you, know, you have all of this time to learn. Large percentages of the population can afford to learn, which can be very, very productive. But that requires that machines do an enormous amount of work for us. So when you see a new discovery in medicine, that was made possible by the amount of machine energy we had at our disposal. So directly and indirectly you can link all these. Now in the case of climate it's very dramatic because for instance the issue of drought you can just show what used to kill people from droughts. There are a couple of different things. One is you couldn't get water and so we have irrigation. So that's a dramatic thing which is a high energy process. Another thing is you didn't have drought relief because you didn't have the, the, the ability, the power to bring food from where you had bad weather, a bad season, uh, from a good season to a bad season. And now you do. So when you see these deaths plummet, you can see a causal relationship. Now, you're not seeing it in like, you know, the relationship is 1.8x or something like that. It's not that, but it's an absolutely definite causal relationship. And so I, I just wanted to clarify that because the, the, what, the, what the graphs do is they, they affirm or they, they, they help affirm the causal relationship that I'm explaining. In no case do I just show two graphs and say, oh, this, this proves it. But the graphs are meaningful because of the cause and effect. So the fundamental idea of the book is that nature does not give us a good standard of living. We need to transform it using lots and lots of energy. And then every aspect of life from climate to getting clean water involves how do we transform the world to make it better for humans. So that, that's the, the core causality uh, of my argument. So I'll ask the next question. My name is Jay Turner. I teach in the environmental studies program here. And you know, thinking back over the last seven or eight years, we've had a lot of people speak on climate. We've had um, people like James Hansen. We've had people like Bill McKibben. Probably no surprise to you that they may have been here before you. We've also had Dick Lindzen and we've uh -huh. had Chris Horner, who are prime skeptics. Um, and I think uh, it's worth noting that we invited Richard Lindzen to speak. 
and uh, college Republicans, I think, invited Chris Horner. So I think there's been a richer debate than perhaps you've uh, you've given us credit to. Uh, credit I didn't credit mean the for. specific school. I'm just talking about. I know. Institute. I just wanted to give you okay. some specifics about this school. He was not so invited. More than just I'll tell staffing. you, he was not invited to Duke when I was there. So the, I was wondering if you could, um, and actually I also wanted to say of, of the skeptics uh, uh -huh. that we've had or the people who've questioned, um, questioned what Hanson and McKibben may have said, you've certainly been the most interesting. Could okay. you bring up the, uh, the kind of moral standard slide that you oh, absolutely. early on with? Yeah. So uh, you're a philosopher. I I'm hope we get to talk about this one. I'm trained as a historian, and I think I'm waiting for it to come back up. But when I read that and say I'd been alive in the 1950s or the 1960s, I would have thought it was a really good thing to say put lead into gasoline or put lead into paint or that we should use something like asbestos. And so I can huh. think of those as historical examples where if we had followed your moral standard, we would have made what would be the wrong choice. And I, I wonder if you could come up with another example where using your standard might lead us in the wrong direction and what you do about that. Um. So I agree there are cases where there's a difference between a misapplication of the standard or even a best, best effort application that you just have an ignorance uh, about versus saying that the standard inherently leads to lead or something like that. Because the, part of the standard, notice I have human progress. I'm, I'm subdividing it to get the aspect that it's, it's a long-range thing. So what you need to look at is you're looking at, for the foreseeable future, how does this impact things? And what you need to do is look at what you know about the different drivers of human well-being and then human harm, and you need to assess those. So let's say that somebody is, is let's take the lead issue, and somebody's pointing out, look, I can show, there are these correlations, and I can explain this causation. And if they came to me back, then I'd say, hey, that's an impact to human life. That's something we need to factor in. Now, how exactly it factors in depends on the big picture. Because imagine, let's, let's take a simpler example, coal in the 1800s, you know, people heating their homes with coal. They were glad to do that, even though what they were inhaling is unimaginable to us, because the overall calculation was it was necessary. Now, fortunately, that paved the way for better stuff. So it, it, you have to look at the full context at any given time. And you have to look at all the drivers carefully long term. But I don't, doing that, there's nothing about a human standard that says you would be pro-lead. You'd be anti-lead if you knew it. So you're always giving yourself the best shot, but you can make mistakes and, and you have to try to recover from those. But in general, we human beings, we, we solve more problems than we create over time. It does sound like there could be a problem if we don't have full knowledge. Well, that's the problem of life. Like, no, I mean, I get hit by a bus. Not, I mean, yeah, but so great. That, that's why institutions of knowledge, insofar as they seek knowledge, are really good. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Lily Moore, and your idea is that you love fossil fuels because they've led to all of these great things, such as they, higher... They do lead to and will lead to. Yes, but that's, I think you're kind of confounding the ideas of energy and fossil fuels because all of these things would re happen regardless of what that energy source was. It's just that right now, fossil fuels are that source of plentiful, cheap uh -huh. energy that is also reliable. But that's just because of the paradigm we live in mm -hmm. where we have access to these cheap, plentiful, reliable fossil fuels. And is that because fossil fuels are inherently the best substance to power everything? Or is it that because we've invested so much energy and we have so much monetary investment into fossil fuels that we've been able to 
store it and use it successfully. You're saying, oh, solar is not possible to use. It's not usable in Germany because we don't have the technology to store it. But why do we not have the technology to store it? It's because we haven't created those technologies yet. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a new technology and we just don't have that kind of use yet. So, yeah. But um, in the future, I think it's completely possible to have that be our main source of energy or nuclear or anything else like that. Why do you think that it's fossil fuels that is so great and not just energy use? And Yeah, so, so this, um, at the beginning of the presentation, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time, probably 15 minutes or so, talking about the relative resource efficiency of the fossil fuel industry versus the others. And it was anticipating exactly this issue because you're right, the fundamental point is that it's energy improves human life. And I couldn't care less where the energy comes from, except that it come from the most efficient source available because if it doesn't, at any, and it has to be at any given time. So you could, let's say the same thing for steel. Like you say, well, I, I want renewable materials. I don't like the fact that we use this non-renewable metal. Society has invested way too much in steel, so let's build all of our skyscrapers and all of our structures and all of our vehicles out of renewable wood. And oh, we can make that work somehow. But that's exactly as logical. You know, it, it is exactly as logical because what you're saying is, and maybe somebody could figure out a way to like enrich the wood and GMO the wood. I don't know. But the point is, it doesn't. It's it's an incredibly inefficient way to try to solve those problems. And so what I'm what I was saying with solar and wind is, is those have historically and those technologies have been around a very very long time. Um, battery powered car was around before the gasoline powered car, by the way. It's that those have not proven to be efficient. So what I'm saying is that when, when this form of generating energy is so much more efficient that billions of people will suffer and die without it for the foreseeable future, you are absolutely morally obligated to say this is, this is, this is something that needs to happen, needs to continue to happen, and, and we should look at it very positively. That's why, that's why I say I love it. So it is, a, it is a superior technology. It's the state of the art. So what I believe in is not renewable energy or green energy. I believe in progressive energy, which means that we always strive to figure out the best form of energy at any given time, and that will evolve. And in terms of, and that's why what I favor is I call energy liberation, the freedom for every form of energy to compete. And that is exactly what the opponents, the so supposed opponents of, of climate change or fossil fuels are not doing. So Jerry Brown, I gave the example of, but overwhelmingly in the anti-CO2 movement, you have anti-nuclear people. Um, there were four climate scientists, including, to his credit, James Hansen, whom I normally think is very dishonest, who said, we absolutely, if you care about human life, we absolutely need nuclear. Four of them, they could only scrounge together four, and the rest of the community went absolutely ballistic, and they almost get ran out of the movement. So um, in, in, if you take, um, you want someone who has sort of an in-between view, I mean, I, I don't think his is right, but uh, there's a, something in Oakland called the Breakthrough Institute uh, with uh, this guy, Michael Schellenberger. Uh, and uh, one of the links I'll send to you guys is, is this podcast I have called Power Hour where I interview different energy experts. And he's telling me, I mean, I think I get uh, stuff from people because he's kind of a liberal. He gets trashed by people for, for being pro-nuclear. They question his motives. So it's this obsession with solar and wind. And this gets me to the most important point about all this that I didn't say because it's harder to get. But I mentioned when the gentleman brought up the issue of my moral standard. The reason I got giddy for a second is because there's something in here that is incredibly controversial that we don't realize is controversial. And that is that we judge things by human well-being. 
And my view is that in our society, we almost never judge things by human well-being in practice. So what, and let's take the solar wind issue. Why are we so obsessed with getting energy from the sun and the wind? If you understand how nuclear power works, empirically it's actually the safest form of energy ever developed. Um, you have enough of it to last however long you would want. Um, it doesn't emit CO2. Why aren't people who think there's a climate catastrophe going ballistic saying, let's run this forward as quickly as possible? Or hydroelectric power, the leading opponents of hydroelectric dams, which again generate no CO2, are people in the green movement. So why is this? It goes to the issue of their, the green movement. What does green mean? Green means minimal, minimal impact. The green movement's moral standard is not, we want to maximize human well-being, it's we want to minimize human impact. That's the goal. Whenever we look at anything, we want to look at how do we minimize our impact. That's why they call it green energy. I want the most life-enhancing energy. Having, being clean is part of that, but I want the most life-enhancing energy. But that's not the focus. The focus is on being green. So when they look at things like solar and wind, they say, oh, the reason they're for it is because they think it's natural. Oh, it's so natural to get it. We're living in harmony with nature. But they're ignoring that it's horrible for human life to try to live this way. And historically, when we lived in harmony with nature, we didn't live. We died in harmony with nature. So the green, I am completely against the green movement on principle. I, and my real goal it's nothing to do with fossil fuels. It's to replace the green movement with a humanist movement, a humanist movement that cares deeply about our environment, but for human beings. And I think it's a crime what they've done uh, to nuclear. And I think that anyone who is, you should look in these three issues. If you find anyone who's either pro-fossil fuels and like anti-nuclear, anti-hydro, that is a big sign for suspicion. If you find someone who's anti-fossil fuels and anti-nuclear and anti-hydro, that that's a death wish for civilization as far as I'm concerned. It's all about the mic. I got no control over this. I can't. Um, hi, my name's Jess, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on fracking and the ecolo possible ecological repercussions of fracking. So the question is about my thoughts on fracking and the, the possible ecological repercussions. So fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing. And, and so the, the, the genesis of this becoming a big issue is that there's a certain kind of rock called shale rock that has, you know, we mentioned these hydrocarbons in them, but it has them in a way that's very difficult uh, to get at. So historically, they were basically useless. It took way more, it was too resource intensive to use. Uh, but thanks to a suite of energy technologies, which I call shale, en shale energy technology, including this technology to fracture the rocks using water and including like all kinds of other molecules and substances, which we can talk about, uh, that allows you to get oil and gas out of them at an affordable price so that you can sell it. And so what this has done, in particular in the US, where we have a lot of private property rights, so people have been free to use this and deploy it very quickly, you know, we've become leading oil producer in the world when eight years ago, when I really started researching this, everyone was saying, we're, we're gonna, our production will go down and down and down. So that's the context of what's happening. Now, there's been a set of claims about it, which is that various aspects of this particular process are dangerous to human beings. So the, the one that was popularized by the movie Gasland, uh, was the, the first one was that it contaminates groundwater. And then there are other associated ones um, about earthquake, cancer, uh, different kinds of chemicals used. Um, and in, in chapter seven of the book, I talk about a bunch of these. I think though that the, the key principle that I mentioned before is important where 
you have to look at the difference between abusing something and, and using it. So with any technology, you have to look at when you're assessing the danger, you have to look at sort of what are the possible things that can go wrong and how many of them are inherent and how big a deal would they be if they went wrong. Like if there's a low risk, but it's a real risk and it's oblivion, you know, that is a big problem. Whereas if it's, if it's a low risk and it's containable, then it's different. What's but I, I regard the focus on fracking as very as dishonest by the people attacking it for this reason. Um, fracking is just one part of producing oil or gas, and it is the least dangerous part to groundwater for very for one very simple reason. So, if you look at at how groundwater get, gets contaminated, there is one commonality among basically everything that can contaminate groundwater, and this is going to be shocking, but it's that it's near groundwater. Right, so lots of things can contaminate groundwater. Pretty much any industrial process, anything we do can contaminate groundwater. But it has to be near groundwater. It has to be able to connect to the groundwater. Now what happens with the fracking is the shale rock is a mile or more deep. And the groundwater is usually less than 1,000 feet deep. And there's, huge, there's a huge amount of um, you know, space in between that's impermeable. And there, we know it's impermeable because historically, uh, if it wasn't, then the oil would already come to the surface. So it's... It's the, it's the least likely thing to affect groundwater. So the question is, well, why is it so associated with groundwater? Well, the reason is because it is possible. Some, sometimes they just lie about it, but it is possible for an oil well or many other things to dump, say, oil, or you can have gas released into the groundwater. But that has nothing to do with fracking. That's just if you have a leak at the surface. That's a standard thing. But if Josh Fox in Gasland had said, hey, you know what? It turns out that sometimes you can have a, a gas leak people wouldn't have been interested because that's a standard thing forever and, and water naturally has gas in it a lot and that's a lot of times they take the natural gas and water and say it came from fracking. But it, it comes from something different than fracking. So the, the whole focus on fracking, the only reason it's on fracking is because that is a new and scary sounding term. So I, I think it's, it's, it's like any other aspect of the energy production process, it needs to be properly legislated and you need to investigate cases and there's potential dangers, but there's nothing unique about it except the name. So I, I'm very upset with that treatment because I think overall it's an amazingly positive development that adds very list, little risk to the process and adds massive benefit. Could I uh, ask a question about your, your method, Alex? You, you emphasized several times that maybe the most important thing you wanted to tell us today is that we should look carefully at an object or an issue line up the positives, the negatives. This, this leads me to ask, with fossil fuels, what are the negatives? Right, so the, the real negatives come under, let's look at this category. Um, the real negatives, so the, the climate issue is weird because it's the biggest perceived negative, but it, it at least so far is not actually the one. But the real issue comes here, with environmental quality. Um, but this, this is an issue for any form of energy, but it's certainly an issue uh, with this, with the hydrocarbon. So remember at the, the beginning of the talk I focus on the issue of because it comes from, because it has this plant basis, whenever you're oxidizing all of these different atoms and you're creating these molecules in certain concentrations, if it's diluted enough, it's fine, but in certain concentrations, they can be unhealthy. So if you go back to you know, the 1800s, I mean, you have people inhaling coal smoke all the time. Now, they did the same with wood smoke, but it's still a health hazard. It was still a very important problem to technologically address. You look at in, in even as recently as the 20th century in the civilized world, you have the London fog in the 40s. You have lots of people getting sick and dying uh, from these things. So 
energy is a serious is a serious process involving massive amounts of resources being transformed and every single form of energy can go wrong in different ways and certain are safer in different ways and we need to be aware of that so here's here's one where fossil fuels is at a sort of permanent disadvantage to nuclear uh, it's weird because people think of nuclear as the most dangerous but because of the way nuclear power works it is it is not combustible so a nuclear power plant is not combustible. The, 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 uh, the uranium or the thorium or whatever cannot explode. And this is an enormous, enormous advantage for a power source. So I, I live in Laguna Beach. I walk to the beach every morning. Every morning I walk by my house and I see on the sidewalk as I'm walking back, like gas line, uh, you know, natural gas line hazard. And I know that there are some small, you know, really small, but there's some chance that that could explode because I know how gas works and I know how combustibility works. And... That can happen, and that does happen, and people die from gas leaks all the time. Now, with nuclear power, what happens is it can overheat, but it can't explode. Now, a nuclear bomb can explode, but there's totally different physics involved. So there's a great line by my energy hero, a guy named Peter Beckman, who said, people were saying, well, what if a terrorist blows up a nuclear power plant? He said, if a terrorist blows up a nuclear power plant, he should be awarded a Nobel Prize, because <laughs> he'll have discovered a new law of physics. Um, I was thinking of another one that's more inappropriate. But uh, even more inappropriate than that one. So that's an example where objectively you've got inherent in a technology, it has less of a risk. Now, nuclear inherently has certain kinds of radioactivity risks that fossil fuels don't, but I think those are much uh, smaller. If you look at, say, solar and wind, they have more risk on the mining end because the, the materials that go into solar panels and windmills are far more dangerous than fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are, are plant matter. They're relatively safe to handle compared to, say, what's something like neodymium, which has to be mined. It's called a rare earth metal, and rare means not there's a little of it in the earth, but it means it's very, uh, it's, it, it's um, where, where are my words? <laughs> it, it's distributed very finely throughout there. So that means you have to mine lots and lots of metal using lots and lots of, you know, toxic materials to get a little bit of the metal. And so that's, you run into all sorts of problems, and then uh, I think chapter seven, I, I tell some stories about what happens in China at some of these mines where we get our clean energy, but we don't look at the whole process. So none of these, I think, I think with all the forms of energy, they can be done well enough where they're all worth doing if they can be done efficiently. But you've got to be really careful. I mean, there's no, there's no joke. It's not like there's nothing to be afraid about. You should be afraid with any form of energy. And that, that's part of what keeps us safe. All right. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm taking an environmental ethics class right now, and I was just like, I feel very like utilitarian and stuff. <laughs> but um, I was just wondering like what your opinion is on like basically like the well-being of like future generations, because like like from what it sounds like like we will eventually like run out of like fossil fuels like at the rate that we're using it, I guess. So then I was just wondering like if like currently like our alternative fuel sources are not or like if in the future like our future fuel sources like fall through and like we can't prov or like they won't be enough to sustain us, then, like, shouldn't, aren't we, like, morally obligated, then, for, like, the well-being, like, future generations to, like, start reducing our use of fossil fuels so, like, they can go on, like, use fossil fuels, like, well, I don't, like, do we have, like, a moral obligation Let's, let's run the tape on this one. So, like, let's say we have five billion years until the sun goes. Yeah. All right. So, that basically means if we're close to running out of it and we can't technologically find a replacement ever, that means we have to share fossil fuels with five billion years of people, which means effectively no one will have any, right? Because it'll be so. That would be a very sad state of affairs. Unfortunately, it's not at all what needs at all what needs to happen. Um, 
So, I to put it this way. This is a really interesting issue, but basically, think of it like this. I got this phone, right? When I buy this phone, it's interesting what I do not think of when I buy the phone. What I do not think of is, is this a sustainable phone? Is this phone made out of all renewable materials? In a thousand years, will future generations be able to use exactly this phone? I don't think about that at all. Why? Because I know that people will find better and better ways to make a phone, and if one particular aspect is not there, then uh, they'll work around it. But I want the best, I want the most progressive phone, the best phone with the best material. So we know that human beings are evolving and progressive. So you can take what I say in, in sort of a bunch of different ways, understandably, but that are wrong. One is, oh, we should only use fossil fuels. I hope I just said that. But the other is, we can only use, well, fossil fuels will always be indispensable. No, I don't think so at all. Um, there's just a lot, what I wanted to show is that the level that they're at is at a much higher level than everyone else. And so that means other people need to pay, play catch up, which is part of why it's imperative that you have freedom of innovation. And unfortunately what happens is that I think what the green movement has done is it's targeted the newer technology. So for instance, it's demonized fracking, it's demonized nuclear. Um, it demonizes things like turning coal into oil, which actually oil is the most scarce of the fossil fuels historically. So if you can turn coal into oil or gas into oil, that gives you hundreds and hundreds of years more. So what we absolutely need is freedom of innovation. And, and the frontier technologies are always the victims when you have any sort of bias against new technology. So as a factual matter, there's so much potential fossil fuel. There's almost unlimited potential nuclear. Uh, and I, I, my guess is, if I had to guess, and I don't need to because free people come with the best solution, my guess is you'll go from what's called nuclear fission to nuclear fusion. Ultimately, that's how the sun works. But it, for various reasons over history, what human beings do is we, we go from very diluted sources of energy and, and less reliable, like the sun, which we used to use exclusively through plants, and we go through things that are naturally more dense and stored, like fossil fuels. And then nuclear is, is two million times as dense as coal. So if you take like, uh, it's just unimaginable, like, you know, you can power a year, of, like what a golf ball of nuclear material can do. So there's a lot of evolution needed there. And unfortunately, our policies are completely going against it. We have time for two more questions. I was wondering how, like, <laughs> I'm watching the rate of attrition. I don't know the mathematical no, function no, on it. It's but. a long time to be under fire. <laughs> No, it's not. It's actually that yeah. someone attributed this to global warming, but it's actually lack of man-made local cooling yeah. that makes this room hot. No, it's a bit hot. So Is this a solar-powered heater or something? Right. I was wondering if you could go back to the China-Indian experiment. I have a question about the methodology. Yep. So for life expectancy, uh, does I? It doesn't convince me because I don't know much about India, but in the case of China, life expectancy, I think, has a lot more to do with the political situation. And that's just, I don't see how these two graphs are correlated. So, just explain what do you mean about the political situation? Well, so from 1970 to 1980, at least a lot of people died not because, well, I guess, I mean, Energy use is part of it, but because overall the regime restricted... You mean like genocide within the regime? Well, yes, that's part of it. And then also there's just a lot of control over the overall economic activity that people were allowed to do. Yeah. So it wasn't... 
I don't think the major issue is their use of energy, but their economic activities in general. So let me. I think there's a really important issue being raised here, which is that um, none of these things exists in isolation. And in a sense, you can say the fundamental. So it's it's not a coincidence that the political freedom increased and the energy increased at the same time, because and that the prosperity increased. Because you could ask, well, why didn't they have it? Why wasn't this acceleration before? Why didn't they? Be, and the reason is because they largely they didn't have political freedom. They didn't have economic freedom, and that's that's the state of most undeveloped countries. So this goes to the, I'm sure the purpose of the center, but the fundamental enabler, not the cause, but the enabler of human progress, is individual liberty of of individuals being free to have ideas and act them out in reality and reap the rewards or learn the lessons from them. But then within that, we have to look at, okay, what are the key areas of action that actually influence the outcome? Because freedom by itself, you just sit down, doesn't do anything, right? So the question is, when we act, what matters the most? And, and what the case I was making is that energy is a fundamental enabler of everything else because it's powering all the machines that do all the work and that give us all the time. So it's not, none of this is to say only energy matters. The goal tonight is not to say, oh, you should only care about energy and nothing else. I'm focused on energy tonight because I think none of this can exist without political freedom. And one big mistake I've heard people who support fossil fuels broadly uh, make is they'll say, well, we need more fossil fuels to improve the underdeveloped world, but they won't talk at all about political freedom. But you can dump a bunch of coal in some countries, not going to do any good if they don't have the freedom to use it uh, rationally. Yes, we have one. My name is Hannah, and I'm from New York, where we recently had um, some pretty big controversies about fracking. And you've been saying that um, just because people abuse it doesn't mean it's bad. But the fact is that so many people have abused it, and these companies come here, and they're looking to make money. They're not looking out for the safety of the people who live there. And when you live in New York, and you've heard so much about how they've gone into other places and abused people who don't also have the power to stand up for themselves and make a court case against them, for this abuse, you are looking out for yourself and what's going to be good for you. So you're at that climate march saying that you love fossil fuels, but people there are looking out for their own well-being and they're not comfortable with people um, coming in and fracking in New York because um, they've, they've learned that people don't do it safely. So maybe there should be more of a focus on making these fossil fuel practices safe so that people can feel comfortable using them. Because right now, the safety, it's not where it should be. So. Okay, I'm going to answer that. But I want to give you a chance to ask a question, because you're very animated. I can tell you. <laughs> okay, I was, I was gonna... oh, okay, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not ignoring this one. So wait wait a second. But I want to just deal with this one. So um, there's a, it's an empirical question of, so, so with any given thing you're describing, there's still the issue of abuse. Like, is it tr if a company is railroading somebody's rights, they shouldn't be able to allow you to do that. So for instance, if I own property and somehow someone forces me to engage in this, that's wrong. And there, there's a lot of detail over how do you work it out and what does your neighbor have a right to do and if you don't like what your neighbor is doing, how much say. And that, there's a lot of issues there. But I disagree very deeply. And having studied this quite a bit and having known quite a people inside the industry, outside the industry who have this, I do not think that that is an accurate statement of what's going on in New York and certainly the people that rally 
almost none of them had anything to do with being landowners who were who were victimized. If you look at the places where the mo this is happening the most, people are generally appreciative of it. And the one thing that they do point out, which is a real issue, is that because there's so much opportunity, sometimes things happen uh, very quickly and things get ignored. So for instance, uh, in some of the places, you know, you have to use enormous amounts of equipment in the areas. And so what happens is the roads get run down. And so the companies over time have been gotten better at building the roads. So these are all, the, the point of, of this is that fossil fuel energy as a technology is, is, a, is a crucial and valuable technology. And that the industry is fundamentally an industry that has a good mission. It's not to say that it doesn't, people don't do bad things, or even that there aren't challenges. Anytime you're dealing with massive projects, there are challenges. But I think overwhelmingly what's happening with fracking is good, and I think it's being hugely misrepresented that most of these companies are out to ruin people's lives. Lots of these people live there. And, and just, I would say as a general rule of life, if you, you know, the more we talk about people, like, we want to make sure to get to know them. It's, it's very different to get to know all the people. And I know lots of environmentalists, so I am not, I've done my homework uh, many times over. Uh, so when I criticize them, I do it at least from deep personal familiarity, whether my assessment is right or not. All right, last one. Uh, thanks for giving me the option uh, to ask my question. Uh, my question is about sea level rise, and you've mentioned it kind of offhandedly a few times tonight. Um, I'm also from Southern California, coastal community, and with sea level rise, my community is at risk, as is Boston, as is Florida, uh -huh. as is a lot of major port cities uh, in the United States and worldwide. And I was wondering how you could advocate for the use of fossil fuels if that would lead to all of these cities being underwater and at risk of more flooding and more storms. Right. So, yeah, I mentioned at the beginning that, that that's the type of consideration that you need to investigate. So if, if and, and in, um, I go through, I, in uh, I think chapter five of the book, I go through a scenario which I think is important, which is what if, what if my assessment is wrong? So what if, what if there's much, there, there are these dramatic things that are happening? And, and it was interesting because once you understand what I call our ability to master the climate, once you understand how much safer we can make almost any climate situation, it's hard to think of something that's truly catastrophic. But one that I could think of is truly rapid sea level rise because it's hard to cope with if it were, you know, what Al Gore talks about, you know, 20 feet in very few decades. Um, but you actually have to look at the data, the trends, and then you have to look at what the basis for the claims are. So the basis for the claims are what I referred to as, as the simulations or the models that predicted runaway global warming. Because the theory of sea level, dramatic sea level rise, is based on runaway global warming. Those aren't separable theories. It's based on the fact that heat tends to expand things, so you would get this dramatic sea level rise. But if the runaway global warming isn't happening, and the simulations that predict it aren't accurate simulations, then that's, that argument is done. And uh, you can look at the data. Uh, the, the best data, I think, that we have about the trends what are called tidal gauge data because we have data for a while on those. Uh, and then I, I keep mentioning the book. I hope you check out the book. But if um, also I'll send you in the links uh, our website, moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. I have all the graphs in the book, including sea level tidal gauges. And what you'll see is that they're, they're very steady. There's not any kind of dramatic trend. And in fact, many places you see sea, sea, level, sea levels falling, sea levels rising. Sea levels are almost exclusively a local issue. So if we did have that runaway global warming, this would become more of a, a concern. So that, that's my view on that. Thanks again to Wellesley College for hosting me, particularly Professor Thomas Cushman. And thanks to so many students for showing up. We had a full room and thanks for being so engaged. 
and so polite. Uh, I don't know how much of a sense you could get from listening. There is a video on YouTube that we'll link to, although I don't think it shows the audience. Uh, but my read was that people were impressed by how reasonable it seemed and also by how there were logical answers to all the questions that they had. So I think they got the chance to see a different framework for thinking about these issues and I think a powerful framework. So definitely spread this podcast, spread the video. I think a lot of students will find it valuable as, as well as non-students, of course. All right, so let's wrap up the show. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter, which will also keep you abreast of the upcoming energy plan at www.industrialprogress.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, whether you can search for Alex Epstein, I Love Fossil Fuels, I Love Nuclear, or Center for Industrial Progress. We have accounts for all four of those. That's all for now. Next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.